Hello, everybody. Welcome to Wombat Radio. Today we are over Skype speaking with Clarissa. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Would you like to, by saying some something about yourself, some context or... or Something about myself? Yeah, or your work. Okay. Uh, am I the first Malaysian you're interviewing on this podcast? I, I've had um, Bilkus has been on the podcast before and Suhaili. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, lots of big mm-hmm. names. Okay. Okay. Cool. Well, in that sense, because, uh, well, I guess it depends on how you actually classify that. In this, I don't really have that much of a major public presence in Malaysia these days. I mean, it was intentionally kept like that. Um, but I do uh, have um, uh, networks with people who are. I, similar to myself in a way we um in the things that we do and our in- intellectual creative interest our engagement with interdisciplinary transdisciplinary kind of work so okay just to introduce my fellow uh, at Sunway University which is located in um, Sunway City at Petaling Jaya Selangor for, for those of you who are not from Malaysia um, Technically I'm not in Kuala Lumpur I'm actually in Petaling Jaya Which is a suburb just bordering into Kuala Lumpur So um, I am a res- Well presently my day as my, For my day job I'm a research fellow With the Sunway University Working in a sustainable Development centre um, I also Of course obviously have my own uh, Personal projects that in a way Are intertwined with my Professional work as well because it's Kind of hard to separate your Intellectual investments um, You know I mean to compartmentalize them In a way where you say this is strictly Professional or this is strictly personal So I also see myself As an ideas creator um, I work basically in the intersection of arts and science, even though I think probably even using these terms um, could probably be a bit reductive for what I do. So I kind of came out with this uh, still uh, fairly new way of like talking about this. Uh, I haven't actually yet nailed down um, the specific you know, label I want to give to it. So I kind of like call it the A-S forward slash S-A, which basically uh, came from the work that I was doing in art, science and science art, you know, which comes first, is it the art first or is it science and what makes it science and what makes it art. Um, but at the very same time, I tried to connect this work, which I started, I think, technically I just started this 15 years ago, although I was fairly young back then, so I didn't really quite know what I was doing back, um, at the time. So I was mostly looking at the art, you know, um, in isolation from the science and sometimes try to see how they come together but really I don't really see them as being very disciplinarily commensurable so like you know what CS Snow used to say actually his um, the two cultures so currently what I'm doing is actually trying to break down like this brick wall of two cultures and also to try to find how these two cultures actually probably come from very similar epistemological uh, background Largely because the kind of specialization we have today is not uh, 
has not always been the case. It kind of like came with the rise of the the modern society, so to speak, of the industrial revolution. Now we are in the fourth industrial revolution, and in a very strange way, you know, we are actually also starting to move away from the kind of disciplinary taxonomy that has characterized the way we deal with knowledge, the way we deal with creativity, the way we deal with how we make things. So, so yeah, that's a bit about me. Um, but of course, on top of this work, I also do other more. Um, you might consider slightly more mundane stuff. I mean, they represent part of my scholarly path. That I do work on um, history, um, philosophy, and sociology of science uh, with particular interest in Southeast Asia. And interestingly enough, a lot of the objects I look at through this work actually helps feed into the work that I do in art science because I see a lot of um, stuff going on uh, within the, you know, the uh, space of. With I mean geographical space as well as in um, more esoteric um, epistemological space, it's not being necessarily separable. But at the very same time, it also helps me to try to like, question what I think science is, especially what modern science is, given the fact that um, you know the study history of science and technology is a kind of like a fairly new deal uh, in Southeast Asia itself. Not that it has never existed, but it's just that you know it's always kind of like following the path that's been set by you know the the modern Western institutions of how they characterize what science is and what arts is, you know, I mean what the humanities is, and what considered as a scientific object and what is not a scientific object. So I kind of like see the work that I'm doing right now as um, being kind of a representation of. Um, or maybe an attempt to try to unpack, you know, what modern science actually really is in the broader sense, rather than just one that's been derived from a um, kind of practice that uh, go all the way back to colonialism and and imperialism and imperialism's uh, own uh, value of what considered as, you know, a valuable, useful, um, pragmatic or at least, um, how, how would I put it as, um, highly um, desirable forms of knowledge. So, yeah. Is there something in there, though, that um, what replaces imperialism is capitalism and no longer are the things that are desirable defined by a noble elite, but by the masses and the purchasing power of those masses? Yeah, there is actually because we do we have come kind of a point where you know I mean this is not even very new I think it's even existed actually during the colonial uh, period where uh, there is actually a sort of like a fetishism that's involved where you fetishize something because it seems to connect you to um, the so-called native like what exactly is the native or uh, you fetishize it because it's seen as you know, like a probably the cure for whatever ills a society has, whether it's like a, you know, a physical cure or a psychological cure or, or maybe economic and social cure. So um, I would say definitely that um, one fetish is replaced by another fetish. Capitalism has taken many forms, and I would say that it has existed, obviously, since in. You know, we can't even say for sure when imperialism actually started and when it ended because there's so many phases of that. 
and it comes in so many forms and it's not just you know um, Western transatlantic imperialism I mean imperialism itself also comes even within the internal the intra um, community um, interactions and how when one privilege or prefer a kind of a specific knowledge over that of another so and I think that actually fits into how we see you know how certain knowledge gets um, value and how that kind of value actually changes over time I mean we reach this point where we see that oh interdisciplinarity is good transdisciplinarity is good we should always find ways for you know the two camps to speak to each other and they can come up with like great stuff and we're going to give a lot of money for this kind of work but the point is that I'm not even entirely sure that people who are invested in this idea themselves truly fully understand as to why they themselves why they think it is good is it because it's a fad is it a trend or is there something deeper to that and um, within that what is art a force for? Art. This is actually a question I've been uh, revisiting actually um, over last Christmas. Uh, earlier on actually, uh, when we were having some technical problems, I was talking about how um, I like to be more invisible uh, for uh, intentionally because it gives me a sort of like this space as like the fly on the wall. Um, I would say objective because you know one can never be objective once once you know once is located uh, someplace, but probably as neutral as possible an observer that I could be where I am not overly invested in one particular way of doing or way of making or way of being, where I try to also look at objects that are invisible, right? So in the process of looking at objects that are invisible, and when I actually go back, you know to all the books I had collected over the years, you know, and also looking at all the materials, um, the so-called art objects or objects designated as art objects, it got me to ask as to why we actually even designate those objects as art. And, you know, of course, we can go into the whole tier of aesthetics and how aesthetics itself comes into, like, providing the parameters for how, how to make something an art. Just like we have parameters for how we designate, you know, an object that fits within a scientific method as being scientific, right? So, and art, you know, for a long time, when most people think of art, they always think of fine art, right? They think of art as products they produce, uh, like paintings or sculptures. I mean, just look at all the museums out there, um, how they have defined so-called classical art. Or even now, you know, they're trying to be a lot more open. So they even go back and say, hey, now we have all these other traditions of art. You know, we have the Islamic art with its uh, book prints. I mean, with its uh, print heritage and its curlicues and its ornamentations. And then we can go back to, oh, we shouldn't call this like, uh, et what, ethnic art anymore. I mean, they are just because they are not art produced uh, in the Western society, they should still be considered in their own terms. But the problem is that the way in which we have looked at art, and I'm actually speaking as a person who is not um, trained institutionally as an artist, nor as an art historian, or even as an art critic or art theorist, but rather as an outsider who has come in to look at cultures and how cultures obviously transpires into different forms, including art itself, is to like 
are we therefore now trying to just expand what is an already very fixed format or very um, how would I put it as a a very strict you know delineation of what art is and then just trying to be more inclusive right like we try to include uh, all these other things that used to be excluded into what is already a reified format rather than trying to re to go back to the foundations and ask ourselves why does this why is a painting art is it a particular is it because painting itself is a method of art or could I, for instance, if I were to make a um, a hoodoo doll, for instance, right, a hoodoo doll or a straw doll, um, why is that considered as an art that's less valuable, you know, maybe from the perspective of an auction house? Maybe there's something that you alluded to earlier on about meaning and, and that art things become an art when they have meaning, but maybe we make art to deal with the meanings that we have nowhere else to put. We have all these feelings that mean that um, we have meaning, but we don't have objects to place this meaning into, and so we make an art and then we just store our meaning in it. And then we can talk to each other about all these, the meaning of all these things. <laughs> Yeah, and that you got me thinking, must meaning actually be attributed? Must it be concentrated on an object? This time I was talking about scientific objects, right? And I was talking about artistic objects, you know, art objects, science objects. But what if something is not an object? I mean, is there a room space or room for thinking of a non-object? Because there's this strain of philosophy. Um, I haven't been following it so closely in recent years, but I think it's still kind of alive, which is basically... Um, I think it's called object uh, philosophy. I mean, I mean, there's powerful speculative realism and the likes of it, where there was also an attempt to actually try to move away from thinking about the object, or probably not so much of the object, but you know, the non-human perspective. And to go away from the non-human perspective probably also requires one to move away from the sort of fixation, you know, this fetishization of object. Like, if there's no object, there's no meaning, right? So, and I think this probably connects to religion as well, how uh, there's always a need to worship an object because of how we then place meaning on the divinity or the, the magicness or the uniqueness or what is special, you know, what's divine about this thing that we're actually yeah. worshipping. And I think that actually goes back to even art, right? Art actually does have its derivation from, you know, our fixation with divinity, our fixation with something that's magical, and our fixation, fixation with something that draws on our emotions and that um, that we think help us access some of the um, things that are beyond our everyday understanding or beyond what we can see as visible in our world. So, yeah, so there's non-object, right? Does that mean that the meaning becomes invisible? Or is it just that because we are so... Um, invested in the object, therefore that there's no meaning, there's no signification if there's no object. I think um, a, an interesting way to think about how people engage in uh, meaning where the object is lacking is to think about the massive ballooning of cryptocurrency interest in the few years, in the last few years, 
because that is a currency without object. And people every day have um, a very, a very visceral feeling when they are considering and managing and interacting and being coerced and encouraged and incentivized through money. And of course, they have currency that is an object, but they're, but they're really doing it for money, which is not an object. And so all of our meaning goes into, so I would say that there is art that is focused on objects, but the subjectivity and the meaning of objects. And then there is science, which is focused somehow on the objectivity of the subject. And this maybe is a separation. The art is the, the subjectivity of the object and the science is the objectivity of the subject. And then, then in this other pillar, we've got incentivization through financial wealth accumulation, which is without object, but is as feverently um, chased and desired and worshipped and bought into as any other religion and that there's some massive power to that especially especially lately it's a very boring subject but i'm fascinated how it suddenly becomes so interesting in this context is in australia we have a thing called superannuation which is money you can only receive after you retire it's like a pension but the government doesn't provide it you have to pay into it over your working life and most people don't think about it until they're close to retirement age. But there's, there's this the institution that is always going on behind the scenes on your behalf for the day that you begin to think about it, which I, the person on the phone today told me that that will be the year 2053 for someone my age. That's when I will need this money. And I thought, well, that is... A that is so far away from where I am. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting that you brought this up because that's also the question of distance, right? Like you say, 2053, that's very far away, right? Yeah. And because I was just thinking in terms, let's, let's go back to the art, right, again. And art is no longer just art always for go art. Back to the art. Yeah, it always goes back to art. You can also go back to science because I would say that definitely a lot of science because I actually have like this book right now that I'm looking at. Um, I'm actually doing some literature review for my project uh, before it gets uh, proof for ethics. What's it called? It's, it's called Leonardo's Machines, Da Vinci's Inventions Review. So, and of course, Leonardo himself is also the object of fetishization. Well, I was in Paris recently and I was at the Louvre. Yes. And I've been to the Louvre before, like I think about nine years ago. And to go back again, last year in December was kind of like, it was an ex, I was basically like, you know, I have a bit of time to kill and I can't really go really far because I have to catch a plane at night. So I went to the Louvre and actually saw the Mona Lisa smile, um, the Mona Lisa's painting or jo the Jocanta painting nine years ago. And it wasn't very impressive for me at least. Probably I'll get murdered for saying that <laughs> there. Um, and I went back again to look at it, and now they actually created like you know this special queue with a um, barriers put around so that you actually have to line up to go as close to Joganta as possible, so you can take a picture of her with your phone or whatever camera that you have, right? And the line is really long, yeah, yeah. and it's just a really boring old cracked up painting as far as I'm concerned. And we're thinking about art, right? Like we, I was talking about the auction house just now, and how art itself. 
And also in Malaysia's context, actually, it became very interesting as well because, you know, we have all these um, issues with our previous government and, you know, the, the YMDB case. I guess Australians probably have heard of that. And the money laundering bit and how yeah. paintings, art, is actually used as a vessel for money laundering. So basically, you can... If you talk, you're talking about cryptocurrency just now, right? I mean... Yeah, it's, it's like a currency without object because it's not identified with any particular currency that is tied to any nation state. But at the very same time, I mean, we know that it exists because we have like the Bitcoin or the purse where we store the coins and because we know that how much yes. coins we have in that purse. So for us, that manifests itself as an object. You know, it's not an object that we can literally hold in our hands. But this is not even a new idea because for most of us, you know, who are living on paychecks, if you don't get an actual check, right, when you get your salary, you have money banked into your account, right? And if you don't actually even use cash, you are actually paying with credit cards. So, and so, yeah, and all this basically connects. Design, it's called skeuomorphism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And paintings yeah. itself is actually in a very strange way. though the painting is an object. It also becomes like a non-object, like a it, it becomes money. It's a, like a non-objective money, but it comes in the form of the painting, right? Like the Mona Lisa smile, or the Joganta or the Joganta painting, for instance, is considered very valuable because, well, I guess because of the fetishism that's been attached to that, and also because of probably certain monetary value that's attached to that. You might not see the money in the painting itself directly, but you can imagine it. So money has become imaginary and the painting, even though it's an object, also has become an imaginary source for something else. You're talking about capitalism, right? So probably, you know, we need pa paintings become probably highly valued in the art world. You know, you don't have auction houses trying to auction off, you know, a performance art, right? A, like a theater or a dance or anything like that because it's very hard to attach something that is mobile, that's always changing you know, to something, to a worth, to a kind of monetary worth in a way they can do with paintings, even abstract paintings that are supposed to be rep representation of the non-object itself has become an imaginary object. So, yeah, so just thinking like in terms of the imaginary, how something that seems substantial yet is imaginary and yet something that's imaginary can actually coalesce into an object in itself. So it's like art it's no longer just about art. Art is also about a lot of things. It can also be the fate of an entire nation that rests on the art that has been basically, you know, where, where the, the money, you know, treasury from a nation flows out through the art. We talk about how uh, colonial, um, former colonial imperial countries have pillaged from their colonies, right? All the artworks and now which now sits in these museums that you have to pay a lot of money a lot of money to fly to to see. So so I guess in a way painting itself is if you even think in terms of the equation and since this is a podcast we can't actually write out an equation. It's like you have a painting, you know, there is a sign, but it's also not a sign. And it's both an object, it's also an imaginary and also becomes and the imaginary itself is uh, embodied by the kind of like a fetishism that we actually attach to it and how we connect certain value to that in the form of money that we cannot see. 
if that makes any sense. Yes, it does. And then I wonder about how, if if we say that it's boring to talk about institution as a building, but it's it's not boring to talk about institution as the perpetuation of these value judgments. And how does art? How what is art outside of? Um, outside of the collective madness of how much we do or do not value a particular object. What, what else is art if it's not a, a joint agreement that something that is anything is, is suddenly something to, to so many people? Without meaning, what is the art? It's like the institution is meaning. And that's what we subscribe to so that we can feel a connection. And the, the, the easiest way to f- be fooled is to, be, to understand things by analogy rather than as you speak about first principles and that engineering and science is constantly going back to first principle thinking. And I wonder what you offer up about how we can engage art from first principles. Actually, this is an interesting question. I've actually been thinking a lot about that as well for my work. If Maybe I can use my work as an example. Uh, I actually uh, originally came to art science because I was actually trained in physics. That was my um, first degree. And I really love um, studying physics. But I also found myself a little bit um, limited by the kind of institutional disciplinary training that I was actually receiving, right? Because I also feel like it was only a small part of my way of seeing and thinking that's been tapped into, or maybe probably it's just the kind of training that I was receiving at the time. And then from there, I actually moved to doing uh, the English, actually for a master's. Uh, it was kind of a good job. I didn't even do, like, do a second degree in, the, in English. I just went straight to doing a master's, and it was a pretty hard jump for me as well. And that's when I actually realized that what I took for granted as, you know, a one way of doing things, I used to think that everybody do things similarly, right? Maybe we look at, we use very different objects. Like in physics, I do a lot of equations, so I don't have to read, like, hundreds of pages of a book compared to somebody who is studying literature who will probably have to read one or two or three books a week, right, before they get to class. So, and I think in the process of doing that, and I was at the time very interested in trying to explore scientific questions, but from a very different way than the way I was trained to do, which is basically to look at how they appear in, you know, as inspiration, as well as as a source of information for the text. So here I was, you know, going to uh, libraries or going online and trying to search for everything to do with science and literature and to find myself getting increasingly confused because of, like a wealth of things that are out there. And I think it was along the way, I also found works, um, books that were writing and they're not actually written by artists. They're actually written by, well, not necessarily scientists either. They're actually written sometimes by engineers as well as by doctors, you know, what you refer to as the craftspeople who will, you know, be conjecturing about, you know, how, for instance, a specific object has, you know, the two four dimensions of being art and science. But at the very same time, they still have a very clean cut notion of, okay, this is science, this is art, we might have numbers, we quantify things, and there's 
mathematics and there is science in that but of course we can say that there's the beauty in the number as well you know how we actually view those numbers and what those numbers are mean to uh, divine or what they mean to define as well and along the way i actually wrote a paper uh, which wasn't actually originally used for any of my academic work but eventually it became a um, writing sample that I submitted uh, when I applied for my PhD program and it was actually, I recall it actually erotic science and I call it erotic science, it wasn't because I was trying to write anything pornographic or erotic even though I did draw on some of like um, how they consider more erotic figures, more erotic motives to imagine like how would we talk about science from a more sensual perspective and what if the sensual perspective is actually when I got very interested in not just looking at art as fine art but also looking at performance art you know bringing in dance bringing in um, installation works I mean digital installation works that can get dismantled once the exhibition or you know once the time for it to be up is over and also looking at more ephemeral forms of art or art that you can only experience in the moment rather than arts that are kind of like fixtures or they are hung on walls or they are you know just put out in galleries and and I think how like along the way I kind of realized that that there's a kind of lack in the language I mean I explore a lot of philosophers whom I feel were trying their best to talk about science from that perspective that more sensual the more intuitive the more you know, I can't put it into logical terms, uh, it's not analytic perspective. I realized that in the process of doing that, um, then it becomes a problem of is this still science? Or even is this even art? Right? Or yes. is this, uh, yes. or have I lost the rigor of either side? Like I'm not actually doing either art or I'm not doing, doing science yes. and I'm not actually <laughs> talking to either side. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you were saying it. I was like, the thing about it is that if you, are not being objective it's not science but if you're not being uh if you're not being romanticized by the experience of the subject then it can't be art and then it, it and then and then it is like what you're talking about it's a craft it's like it's like the shoemaker he would do some very um pretty decorations on the shoes but the shoes are still an an object that will serve a function that is to lure us and seduce us and speak on our behalf in front of other people when we purchase it and dress ourselves in it. But at the same time, it, it may be the state of the art, but it is not an art in the way that it should seduce us to stumble into an expanded universe. And I think also along the way, um, I... Also decided I um, well to the process of doing my PhD, and I started to see myself swinging into the other direction, away from the more sensual, the um, sometimes non. I would say that it's not a narrative. Um, I probably don't know we should go down narrative because that probably is another podcast altogether. Uh, but it's I kind of find that I it's I need yeah. I found myself trying to figure out how... It, let's go back to the question institutions that you brought up, right? And I kind of realized I cannot kind of do a work that is that's disembodied and that is not connected to any sort of like prevailing institutional uh, criteria for what is uh, considered valid, right? 
otherwise yes. I'll never get my PhD. And then, you know, all those years will be wasted. And interestingly, I was basically looking, originally, I don't know how I even did that. I was, it started with me actually in class. It was a class on film and phenomenology and media. And one of the questions that came out was on the phenomenology, the experience of the non-human and the machinic experience. Of course, at one point, I was actually very um, naive. You know, I was thinking about machines. I think this probably goes back to my very deterministic kind of upbringing in the sciences. The machine has to be something that is man-made. It not occurred to me that the machine actually can be an organism. You know, it doesn't have to be man-made. It can be anything else. You know, and it can be something that's also separate from one's consciousness. You know, one at least the anthropocentric consciousness. But in the process, I stumbled upon an article that was talking about the Large Hadron Collider and how it's being shut down for three years because just as it was actually being, you know release out and as I said it was starting its first run because of some problems with the magnets and and this was going on I was reading this article around the time I was having that conversation in that class with my other um, colleagues and my fellow graduate students and the thing that came to me is like you know this big giant machine right you know that's breaking down and now they're shutting it down for three years just to repair it and I'm just thinking about all those things that go through it. Sure, they're invisible particles. And this is actually when the question of the invisible actually uh, got my attention, even though I had no way of articulating at that point in time. You know, and you know, these particles, I mean, they're obviously not humans and they're also very invisible and we mostly can access them only through computers and through telescopic, microscopic imaging. So what we see is what these instruments allow us to see. We can't see anything that's beyond that. And seeing that be mediated by this gigantic uh, machine, right? This huge collider that actually is like a mammoth, like it's like a monster eating another smaller monster because technically this machine grew up from a much smaller machine and it got swallowed by another bigger machine and then we end up with a large hadron collider which is one of the biggest machine until they come up with a super large Hadron Collider. They're building that right now. I don't know when that's going to be finished. Supposed to be finished sometime soon, which will swallow up the present large Hadron Collider. So we have one big monster. So, and this monster itself actually, um, you know, is that, you know, in the belly of the monster is where so-called knowledge, new knowledge is supposed to be happening. How we're actually starting to see the world that we think we understand and how we actually unmake what we think we know about the world that we are understanding. And this is actually a question of media. And I was starting to see basically in that moment the seeds that, you know, what is this thing about the media? Because at this point, because at that point in time, I was very interested in the history of media technology, going back to, you know, that predates the so-called analog digital, digital sort of divide, um, going back to when media, I mean, the kind of artifacts that we're looking at were not even considered as media, you know, they were just kind of thought of as media today because, oh yeah, you know, there are also ways for conveying information, there are also ways for uh, tracking and storing and helping us make sense, making meaning of the world. So it's also media all over again. And I think it's like kind of from there, I realized, wait, um, how do I study this kind of thing? And I went back to the disciplines, went back to the institutions, and I realized that I can actually study in the margins the way I was doing it, but of course, I probably will not um, be able to present the work in most places. Um, and also because that kind of work that I was doing at that point in time was still fairly new. Now there are more people doing it. So obviously, there's more of a community to talk about these things. But when I was doing it, the only people who are looking at it from that, you know, 
non-science perspective in forms of like this, you know, this culture and this uh, sociality that's going on in there are anthropologists who are basically more interested in the humans who are doing that work, whereas I was interested in the non-humans. So how do you talk about this? I can go to media, but unfortunately because the work, the stuff I'm looking at is so esoteric, I have to go back to the science. And the science is so esoteric that it's very hard to talk to scholars who do media studies and even who do art about these kind of things. Because there are a lot of artists who engage with the life sciences, but not very many that engage with physics. Even though CERN, I know, has a residency that's trying to encourage more artists, artists to engage with physics. But that's another different story yeah, altogether. Do you think that's, that's about um, just literacy of the artist to understand what's going on enough that they can break it apart and and build something from it and um or do you think that there's just this this divide that actually if you are not literate if you're not steeped if you're not in a community that is interested then you can't garner up within yourself the idea that this is interesting and urgent and a a a question for the humanities f- to put your effort as the artist into because the artists are so focused on uh, things that seem about the human condition, <laughs> to, for want of a better word. And that, of course, is constantly changing. It always has different media and different language, the human condition. But um, it should be part of the human condition that we, as a species, are up to the point where we can smash particles apart into, th- into things that were smaller than we ever thought existed. But because it's, because it takes, because it's such a steep curve to get to the point of literacy where you can embody that knowledge, which, like you say, is mediated through the translation devices that needs to interface with our sensory systems, then it just, I wonder if, if really it's, it's it's there's some poetic connection between the Mona Lisa being at one point so much nothing but with enough hype that it garners into becoming a something and then that that people don't understand. It's like um I think there was there's a movie, an Australian film called go big and it was all about the uh, a few people who generated so much hype around a stock that they were about to launch on the share market that actually had no company behind it um and it's like the mona lisa is that but people feel too dumb i haven't seen that movie right now like to People feel too dumb to say what you said, which is it's a nice painting of of a woman from a long mm-hmm. time ago, maybe, or of something else. But but um, then people also feel too dumb to say, I want to know more. My brain can't fathom the fact that you are smashing invisible objects together to produce more invisible objects. How can that possibly have any bearing yeah, <laughs> it's like, thank you for spending so much money and 50 years to make more invisible objects. <laughs> yeah. 
There's like there's and a few even in the life sciences you have people moving to mm. yeah yeah and, the, and and that actually got me thinking right yeah the whole idea of big data started with the idea yeah. of in, like gazillions of invisible objects of course now they're going to more visible stuff right now they're going back to the humans in the process and I think as you're talking about literacy um, I should I kind of like um, jump on that before I forget I actually am writing a work about that um, talking about ways of knowing yeah. like if you're looking at objects that are designated by institutions as scientific because they their appearance, their manifestation is the result of the scientific method. Is that the only way in which you can access them? Or is, is that the only way in which you can study them? Or is there any other way for which you can look at that? I mean, this is something I've been writing on. I think it's been very difficult um, to write this. I think I've been doing it. I mean, I started with my dissertation, which I think was just a seed of an idea. It wasn't even well written because I had the idea and not much time to write it, but I know that I was going to like follow up on that after I've finished the PhD and I've been writing on it I think pretty much intensively for the past one year more than a year you know the idea of why I mean non-human is always predicated on the abstract the abstraction right and of course abstraction itself uh, there's also pushback in the idea of the abstract even though I think this is also a problematic as well as um, sort of misguided pushback uh, especially when we think about how um, some of the pushback came with the assumption that okay, you know, something that's very abstract is a is a Western thing, and I kind of like don't like the idea just because yes. a lot of the people in the West are working in this. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a Western idea. There are actually other forms of abstractions that has actually appeared in other short of saying the word culture. I would say in other knowledge forms i mean in knowledge forms that are not practiced within the transatlantic yeah. region or any uh settlements of the west and i think that i think when i like in the work that i'm trying to do here i call it art science largely because i mean i could just probably just call it like a practical uh philosophy of science but i can't realize i mean even the word art science itself is already reducing it but i thought at least i'm working from a knowledge frame that tries to persuade people that i'm not wedded to a single trajectory or kind of like a single disciplinary way of looking at things because one of the problems i have with a lot of studies in i mean study of the so-called non-western science even that i have a problem with that kind of dichotomous form of thinking is you know, there's this word ethno that's attached to it. Like you have ethno botany, you have ethno medicine, you have ethno pharmacy, you have ethno whatever, right? So it's like basically like you know you need to preface it with the word ethno to say that oh you know this is not like uh your standard mainstream Western science. And you get even similar pushbacks by people who are from this region who say, Oh no, I don't believe in uh let's take an example. Um what is the Chinese? Uh, practice um, sorry it, it just uh, skipped my mind for a moment like I don't believe in Chinese medicine in general for instance why uh, because it doesn't adhere to the uh, western modes of medical practice the problem is a lot of people who say these things they don't actually even know what the history of western medicine is about you know and where a lot of the inspirations for things that go on in western medicine might have actually come from as well right so like, oh, I don't believe in putting a needle. Yeah, isn't the idea that you do something and then you observe what an impact it has 
and then you know... This is what I think when I'm making a show, for example, when I'm generating a choreography or, or a song, is that the reason that I am free to invent is because the authorship of sense and the authorship of logic and the authorship of the rules of this environment or world are up to myself and my collaborators. Um, but with science, it's hoped that even if you replace the director, the outcomes will be the same if they, if they follow the same things. And that what that does is save people from um, superstition. Because it is, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on how to avoid, how to open up a space where art and science don't have to be such, um, a, such an oxymoron, but how to also not condone superstition. Yeah, the term superstition itself, um, I think, is derived from this idea, you know, from this um, way of thinking where, you know, I believe that this thing will happen but I can't tell you why yeah. so it's this idea like I don't yes. know the the reason or I don't even know the backstory for this I don't know the history but I've been told that if I were to do things in this particular way something bad would happen to me right so of course superstition yes. itself yes. yeah, draws actually as well from just like hoaxes you know hoaxes don't just come out of thin air it's not a vacuum it's not a vacuum invention but it's actually sometimes predicated on actual something that is real I mean there's something that's actual and something that actually has substance uh, and something that could potentially yeah, cause but, a but certain also outcome. quite possibly something that's been um, the there's a causal relationship or there's a correlation, but we want, I, I want anything that is claimed as science to have a causal relationship. I don't, I don't, um, want to think that something has a, just a correlation because then it doesn't seem like, Mm, I, I mean, this is also, I'm speaking from always growing up in a Western situation as well, is like how, how to deal with and how to respect communities that operate within animism rather than what you're talking about, imperial scientific method, and how to respect that that is a form of knowledge and it has abstraction and it has correlation. But what I worry about is when people would go through suffering because they think that this leads to that, but actually that they don't, that that's never going to be the case. And how do you balance, um, respect as, as well as not wanting to perpetuate something that will perpetuate suffering? Yeah. The question is both sides. Yeah, the question you're asking is actually pretty huge. And this is actually the, should I say, the use of the word object. That's basically the objective of the research I'm actually doing with this project uh, that I'm starting this year. 
on yeah. you know the art science approaches to sustainable futures. When I talk about sustainable futures, I'm also rethinking and playing on the word futures and actually what that means. And one of the things I always say in anything that I write is that the future, and I think anybody who's a futurist or historian will agree with me, it's always predicated on the contemporary as well as the history. They're not operating in silos or, you know, in isolation from each other. So, and one of the things I'm thinking about when you talk about space, right, this, this is what you call the methodological space. So, when we say, you know, bringing together two methods that seem to contradict each other, is there a way in which you can still get them to work together, even they may appear to contradict? And I think that actually for eons, I would say that scientists or natural philosophers, you may call them like 200 years ago, I think they've always worked with contradictions, but they always kind of like find a way to kind of like show how these contradictions are actually necessary because these contradictions actually also kind of like invoke the complexity of the knowledge object that you're working with. It also talks about the limits that you have and how much you do not know your, your ignorance about the knowledge object you're working with. And I think contradictions are also necessary because it also highlights to us what is missing in that picture, you know, and that something that we do not know, which is invisible to us, does not mean that it does not exist. So contradictions probably points us to like, okay, you know, there's a bit of a hiccup here. Maybe there's maybe a little bit of a jagged line here, or there's also a bit of a fissure here. So how do we deal with all these fissures? How do we do all these ruptures? And how do we even deal with all these like, okay, this is not, this jigsaw parts, you know, are not connecting well with each other. So I would say that one of the things I want to look at is the question of contradiction. So called epistemic contradiction. Is it necessarily the same as ontological contradiction or are they like two separate things? Of course, as I mentioned, methodological, like with methodology itself, you know, re-questioning the foundations of the methodology that we use to practice any forms of knowledge would that actually help us also rethink why we are so invested in a particular way of validating that knowledge. When I say knowledge, I'm also using a very big sense. It could be knowledge derived through artistic uh, work or it can be knowledge derived through uh, complete observation or through experience or through detection or by well, using instruments to measure. Be incorrect. There, there's a real, it's a real situation that like you, I even think about like Western diets, that the knowledge that you need to boil your veggies until they are grey and flavourless and mushy is so offensive to me now that I know better. But for 20 years, I didn't know better. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that, that that was knowledge that I wish had been challenged sooner. <laughs> um, and I think the same thing about like and that's that's frivolous suffering of my own taste buds and enjoyment of vegetables but i think the same thing about the the very non-frivolous suffering of um animals that are used in medicines like lobsters whose blood is used um because it's been scientifically proven or or um rhino horn and tiger's penis or whatever that's used in a way that has not at all been scientifically proven, whether it's been proven or not, it still has a direct 
a direct impact on the suffering of those creatures. And if if it makes a difference, it's a little bit of solace that they're suffering, but good is coming of it to me and my loved ones. But if there's no good coming of it at all, <laughs> then it seems even more abhorrent. But that's the thing you say. Whether we think there's a good coming out of it is also predicated on our own biases, and also on what we believe. Yes. As Okay, because what we yeah, what we maybe we might see evidence of that, but the evidence itself is probably also colored by our own prejudice and also our own psychological sort of like need. I mean, our psychological need to believe that this is something that is good for us. And yeah, aren't we just a bag of prejudices? It's like the only way that we know how to be in the world is to experience something and then reference back to our prejudices to see if we should judge that as good or bad. <laughs> and then somehow our prejudices are in contradiction with each other. Yeah, you mentioned just now about diets, right? And how you didn't know better and how you boil vegetables. Because I was just thinking about how, I mean, you know, we talk about cultures, let's say of two roommates living in the same house from very different nationalities, very different ways of living and practices and food practices particularly you know why it's abhorrent in cooking stuff one roommate maybe like something that the other roommate has been doing for 20 or 30 or whatever number of years right and i think it's the same thing even when you think about science and art right i mean for a very long time i mean there's also this idea of the comfort of the familiar like when we have this let's use the scientific method as an example, scientific method actually does provide a sense of familiarity and comfort to us. I mean, even as like if you're not a scientist or you have no scientific training whatsoever, the idea that someone would tell you that, you know, this thing has been proven through experiments, through uh, validation by various experts, expertise comes into play here as well, and that uh, this um, work itself has is hinged on like lots of data there's this term as well data right and there have been a lot of like replication of the experiment to show that this is true or that there's also possibility that this i mean of course there might be inconclusive data but there's nothing that will conclude that this is necessarily good or bad so with the use of the the language of scientific methodology we are very assured that what we have here is legitimate and is and that whatever decisions that we make on whether we want to accept, you know, the results, the outcome itself is, we feel a little bit more comfortable doing that. Just like we go to see a doctor when we are sick because we are very comfortable and we are, um, we trust, this question of trust comes up. We trust that the doctor is trained in not just medical knowledge, but a specific kind of methodology that will allow him or her to test you and to you know diagnose whatever illness that you may have and then prescribe the necessary treatment for that right and then when we try to operate outside of that kind of familiar familiarity and that kind of comfort zone it becomes a problem for us it's like you know if i'm staying with a roommate whose style of cooking is abhorrent to me because i just cannot understand for the life of me why my roommate would like food that tastes or smell like that i guess it's the same thing you know as like for some like a person who probably is not exposed to a particular form of treatment, right? And for them, it might 
seem as though that the treatment does not adhere to any legitimate, organized, systematic method and it's uh, full of superstition, which is, this potentially that might be true. I mean, there might be a lot of quackery involved in that, but that's the thing. It's not, they justify the quackery of it, not because that um, is based on any legitimate, I mean, based on any kind of study or understanding of it. It's just that because it's different, it's not familiar, that becomes the form of quackery. Just like now, like traditional medicine, for instance, even though I don't like the word traditional because it also seems to presume the idea that you know, it is a form of medicine that belongs to kind of niche practice. It's not part of mainstream, so it's not valued in the same way. And the fact that it's like a dinosaur that's dead long ago, but we're still practicing it, it's, it gives the idea that the thing hasn't developed, it's not evolving, it's not moving, just because, you know, it's something that is ethnic. You know, it's not something that's part of the way I in which think, you train. Um the traditional contemporary medicine divide is kind of um, abstract for individuals, but for uh, medical insurance companies, they have to draw very specific lines in the sand and say physiotherapy is contemporary medical practice and acupuncture is a traditional medical practice and we will subsidize one and we will not insure the other yeah uh, and I wonder if that I I only know that because that's happened to me where I know the acupuncture worked in a dance show I got injured in because it meant that I could go back on stage the next day but it, it, they weren't going to cover it and I just assumed that it was a racial situation because if I went to a physiotherapist and they administered the acupuncture, it would have been covered. <laughs> but I wonder about all of the um, the if you do science and if you do art and what relationship you want them to have because it doesn't feel like you're more heavily invested in either one. Actually, it feels like there's a whole other space that you're generating which says the subject has the capacity for, for the creation of the unimaginable and for the discovery of the laws that exist that we don't even know about that are just as unimaginable. And I wonder how I can not say that I'm into art and I'm also into science, but I can say that I want to approach things with this, this other, other that you're working on. Like, what is that relationship that you want to have with this thing that you're making space for? This is a question I've been asking myself for the past one year. I mean, like intensively for one year. I mean, consciously for one whole year. Yeah, I mean, I think I always had this at the back of my mind for the last 15 years, like when I started my master's program. I have asked this question, but you know, because I was more concerned about, okay, you know, I'm dealing with literature right now, so let's focus on literature right now and see how I'm looking at science from a literary perspective, you know, right? So I cannot, like, engage in a space where there's no name for it. And of course, when I discovered science art, I thought, oh, cool, you know, art, science, science art, maybe this is that space I actually want to work in, but then I realized that, you know, it's art science when the artist is doing it, it becomes science art when the scientist is doing it, in the sense that 
there's always this idea of being anchored more heavily within the discipline you know, that you are more familiar with and then seeing the other as always the other but it's something that's good to work with I guess you yourself probably experienced this right from having worked with both artists and scientists and how no matter how open each side is sometimes there's always this this little tiny space where you can't seem to get across to each other and you can't seem to help each other understand where you're coming from you know there's understanding but there's also a lot of non-understanding that's going on yeah it's like even when both sides are equally literate there's just no way that that they can be equally literate because there is not a chance in hell that that science person is embodied to the point where they can experience and be open to a physical impulse that makes them do a headstand. And there's also no way <laughs> that this dance person has put in the hours that it takes so that when you think about a concept like... Um, a concept like digestion, you understand all the other systems that are at play and that are affected. It's like the dance person is driving down a highway and they've only ever been on the highway that they've never, never, never been to the side streets. And it's like the scientist is driving down the same highway, but they've got their, uh, like, yellow sunglasses on and so they're never going to stop at, like, the fun museum because they don't see it. And it would be a waste of time. It would slow you down. But the, I don't think that's the. I don't think literacy is the biggest problem. I think it's. I think inherent in that is that you build up a a that might even be unknown to yourself a value system of what is worth following, what what idea and what mystery is worth unraveling, and how will you get there in exactly what you said an hour ago with rigor. It, if it's not art and if it's not science, that means that what exists between those two is a third space and it's, it's about the relationship that they have and the value that they have for each other and not in, in serving each other but in having an offspring that can go on and manifest itself fully that doesn't fall into the trap of being completely unimaginative art and doesn't fall into the trap of being um, completely superstitious, unfounded pseudoscience. Yeah. I'll consider that as an emergent space. And I think the methodology itself mm. is very important. And I think I was referring a lot to familiarity, right? The idea of familiarization. And I think one of the hardest thing is to try to be unfamiliar or to defamiliarize. It's like whenever I bring up the concept, it works well with certain groups of people and some will be like, what the hell are you talking about? What do you mean by defamiliarizing, right? What do you mean by the so-called uncanny? Uh, the unhindling? Because it's uh, like it's basically uh, what some will refer to as the unholy alliance between the arts and science to produce a kind of monstrosity, <laughs> like you know, kind of like a chimera that is neither science nor art. And if it's neither science or art, where will you place it within the institution? Like, how will you value it? And what outcome do you expect to come from that? I mean, is it going to be just like a museum or gallery piece? You know, just sits there and be enjoy and be stared at? Or can it actually be useful to society? 
And I think this is something that I actually want to interrogate, actually, which is why I also call my project Sustainable Futures. Largely because I think there's this idea, you know, especially in so-called developing worlds, such as Malaysia, in a way, is considered a developing world. It's this idea that, you know, wherever you produce, right, even if it's artistic, and thankfully, I think over time, art is actually given a little bit more value, uh, even in developing countries compared to when they first started out. It's like, what are you producing that would be useful for society, whether in terms of the utilitarian economic use or in terms of the cultural transformation, the cultural, ideological, political, um, agential transformation of the society that you're working with. So if you actually create this chimeric space that becomes suspicious, I mean, it, it creates suspicion and you have no way of actually like taking any boxes for that or like, you know, how do you fund such a thing? And we don't even know what that thing looks like. How we don't even know what the outcome looks like. I think it actually becomes a very, um, can be both a difficult issue to sell, but at the very same time, it also can be a very a promising idea to bring forth, especially to societies that are still not completely, you know, reify the ideas of what is necessarily valuable or not. And I think it also can be valuable to societies who are probably trying to break away from, you know, being controlled by being given a sort of like a epistemic control from, I mean, by others, so-called more powerful, more developed societies who are basically dangling like, you know, the value of, okay, these are the knowledge that we have, we have been gathering over the past decades while you guys were like, I don't know, sitting under the stone or something like that. And now we're trying to sell this to you and we're going to like trade with you, you know, negotiate with you, like what kind of exchange that we can make. But probably it's like in through this space that this, um, the society that feels themselves being shortchanged financially, economically, socially, they probably see that as a space where they can actually create like um, something of value to themselves. Uh, we might not necessarily have the capital value immediately, but I think a lot of things didn't start out having any capital value, but for, you know, over space of time, they developed to have a kind of value, a kind of value that would basically lead to a desire from the other party to engage in a kind of exchange with you, with the object. Of course, I could also be very idealistic and say, well, you know, who, who gives a damn, right? About, you know, creating something that, it, you know, the kind of the whole Marxist idea of value that has to have a sort of economic, a very transparent economic value before it has any value whatsoever. But I guess, I think practically speaking, I, um, also in terms of thinking about the scarcity of resources, I think we still need to think about value. You know, it's, and I think everything does have a value. It's just whether we can actually see the value in that uh, and what that value actually can translate to for the society that uh, for which this object is in. Yeah, and even if um, the only, even if the only value that it has is that it becomes a um, a very expensive art object that's useful for money laundering for a corrupt government. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, precisely that as well. And I think yeah, even something that may seem like okay, you know, this one is it looks pretty or it looks weird. It sits in the gallery, I can go and appreciate it. Even though it might look like that in the beginning, I'm 
share with enough persistence and with the desire to actually look beyond what is just there. I mean, look beyond the sort of like an institutional um, delineation of like the kind of knowledge that you will use to like appreciate or to critique this object. I'm sure this object will actually translate, can transform into a different kind of uh, signification, can be used for something that is sort of different. I actually would like to use like an example of like in the life sciences for instance, this may actually a lot of inspiration from the art world in how we create like new forms of biological sciences. Talk about synthetic biology for instance. Right? Before that it was cool to create aesthetic stuff, you know, with biological materials. But now they realize it's not just that. It's not just, you know, about you know speculating and playing with impossible stuff that are good to look at and fun to play with but has no real value in the end but now it's become like something that is not just no longer just fun or something that's not just oh you know I'm bored this time let's try this other thing it's not just that anymore it just translated into something that actually helped us create and you're talking about third space right now we're actually creating new spaces unimagined spaces unanticipated spaces just because we were playing with something and I think one of the things that I think it's starting to come out as part of the trend right now, even though it's always been under um, value for a very long time, is the question of play. Like when you create something, play actually I think has a very important um, role in that, right? Like when you do dance, it's not just, okay, you know, I am going to create a dance uh, that lasts like 40 minutes and these are just like the steps I'm going to have the performer do throughout. There's also a lot of experimenting and the experimentation involves a lot of play, playing about and sometimes a lot of the play itself may actually even not be very systematic but in the process of that unsystematic, unstructured form of play, you actually create unintentionally a system, right? It actually will trust, it's like from well, chaos uh, yeah. a system emerge. So, and I think this is something that yeah. is underappreciated when it comes to how knowledge is expected to develop. And when we are asked to write, okay, what is your method? When we put in a grant application, what methods are you going to use to do this? Yeah. How do you explain this kind of method? Yeah. And actually, we're talking about a system for play. So we're talking about rigorous play as a method for creating spaces that that or like um what you said a chimera space but that but that play means that there needs to be a certain uncertainty a level of uncertainty but not but that yes and maybe the exciting thing about that is that it's not that you'll never know it's just that you shouldn't be expected to know before you begin yes and yeah. that in the doing will become the knowing. Nice. Nice. You can have the hypothesis. I mean, if you want to say, okay, I'm going to create, I'm going to borrow the scientific method and create an art method with the scientific method. I'm going to create a hypothesis. But the thing is that what should your hypothesis look like? Do you need to have a very clear definition of what your hypothesis is? And do you need to like have this idea of falsifying the hypothesis for it to be a proper hypothesis? that is testable, right? And this is basically the way we think about the scientific method. In fact, I was actually just recently written an article on that very topic of rigor, right? Because I was actually trying to connect the work that I was doing in art science to the idea of the cyborg as well, because I was actually invited to write a piece on that. 
um, and it's still in the it's still in the developing process. And I think yeah. one of the things I want to do is like if I were to encapsulate this whole idea of you know this breaking out of that binary to think about you know the cyborg is not just like all oh, human machine you know we, if you go look you just google images of the cyborg you get all kinds of like strange stuff from the terminator to i guess donna haraway's uh, classic you know the illustration of the front cover of the book the cyborg manifesto and other essays and like i think it's time to try to break away from thinking about the cyborg as being very substantive object why not think about the cyborg as you know the chimera of ideas that don't just quite belong together but when they come together they create not a scary monster but a monster that can actually change the way we perceive i'm not even saying that we perceive the world just the way we perceived in general right so and i think as I say, the rigor, you know, the question of rigor itself is something that, in a way, is borrowed by the arts community from the scientists because I think when a lot of literary scholars, since I came from literature as well, I guess I, I, can, I, have, I can talk about this, is that, you know, this idea, oh, we need to give more system, we need to give more rigor, we need to give a kind of like a more scientific approach to how we actually examine all this humanistic work out there. So let's borrow something from the scientific method. So we, tr not, we don't borrow it in the exact way that they look like, but we try to borrow the same language. So, and how does that actually limit the way we now look at things? So like even now, regardless of what discipline that we come from, there's almost this very homogeneous outlook of what constitutes as rigor. What constitutes as, okay, this is... Maybe it's a kind of defensiveness, right? Because we want to be taken, especially if you're in the arts, humanities, well, you want to be taken seriously. So you have to show that you're serious by showing that, hey, my work is rigorous too. It's not just a scientist who is rigorous. Even artists and humanist scholars can be rigorous in their work. And we adhere to methods. We adhere to ways of, um, you know, triangulating our evidence. We have... Uh, very rigorous way of arguments. We have ways of supporting of arguments to demonstrate rigor. I, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but when we are so completely, I mean, invested in that to the exclusion of everything else, what are we missing out? We will have serious games now, which is basically the idea that, oh, you know, you create a game with a utilitarian end. That's not a bad thing in itself, but how does that actually also change the way we now study games? Now, games has no longer become a manifestation of a unstructured activity where we try to discover ourselves or our world but it's become like something with an agenda at the end so there's no agenda therefore it's yeah, not it's um it's so there's no agenda therefore it, it's not it industrializes the game and by industrializing sets agenda and then by setting an agenda um mm -hmm. mm, uh, what would be the word like uh makes it lame like takes away the power of what the game is which yeah. is space for play beyond yeah agenda <laughs> and then it says oh so it's like yes. it's it, i guess it's like um when you get gluten-free bread but it's not really bread yeah like it's called bread, but it's yes. It's at the level of substitute that it's not. It doesn't have the consistency. It doesn't have the taste. It's just a replacement for. It will take the space mm -hmm. of. 
And there's something about mm-hmm. that that when something is is altered so deeply, but it's it, all it retains is the name, then it no longer serves the mm-hmm. the social need of the community that used to participate in that activity. Yeah. And therefore, yes, regardless of its level of rigor, it is not functioning any longer. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly that. And I guess this is something I definitely need to question in this mm-hmm. so-called art science science art. I probably need to come up with a better name than that at some point. But at this point, <laughs> I think one of the difficulties because when you're doing work like this is that uh, you would, if, especially if you're working with objects. Here we are, back to objects and subjects all over again. Especially if you're working with something that do not uh, have a already in place a value within the institution, or does not yet have a very fixed way of, you know, kind of like a very how they call it, a legitimate position in the knowledge world itself. It becomes a, a bit more skitterish, you know, because you are worried like. Um, as a researcher, you're worried that you, no matter what you have to say, good or not, it might not be taken seriously because this idea of rigor comes back into play and people will question the rigor of your of the work because firstly, the object you choose to work with or the subject you choose to work with as well as the method you're working with and even your ever-moving, ever-shifting uh, you know, definition. They will question that as well because everything is shifting. So, and you, you talk about uncertainty, I think uncertainty, even though, you know, they talk a lot about uncertainty in physics, but you know, in physics, uncertainty is not really as uncertain as we like to think, even though in popular imagination, oh, the uncertainty principle, you know, you can't be certain about things, that's actually not what it meant. It just means that you cannot measure two things at the same time, that's about it. There's nothing uncertain about that. But uh, we think that there's uncertainty, and I think in a way that also makes us limit what uncertainty is in the sense that uncertainty means that there's always like one post that is fixed fine you have another moving post that's completely fine with us but you cannot have two moving posts at the same time so when you have two moving posts what's going to happen so i think that is basically the kind of like um difficulty that i'm actually facing just like when you were saying that i'm not Thoroughly invested in either side, even though I have trained the sciences, it doesn't mean that I believe that I should subscribe to the existing method. And I think this is also a sort of like a argument that I constantly have with uh, other scholars um, in the disciplines who may not necessarily agree with the approach that I'm taking and who might tell me that I should you know, try to adhere to the conversations that are out there so that I can actually make some contribution and then people will know what I'm talking about. By the process of adhering to the language of the existing conversations, I'm also in a way detracting from the intention of my work in the sense that I am now just trying to find ways to get people to understand my work and hope that they can connect it to their work rather than helping them move towards more unfamiliar territory. So in a way, this is like a chicken egg issue. I mean, you don't even know what comes first. And I think this was the problem I have been constantly facing since my PhD days. And I think this will persist actually for the next one year. But at the same time, uh, this persistence, this problematic persistence also has given birth to a lot of great ideas and a lot of great way of thinking about things. I also actually basically attracted people to talk to me about this 
topic as well. I mean, such as yourself and some of the other people who asked me to like, you know, um, I like some of the stuff that you've been writing about and I would like to, you know, probably see if you can write about this thing. I don't know what they have in mind. I cannot pretend to know what they're thinking about when they invite me to like uh, perform my work in particular textual spaces. But then the best way for me to know is to actually, you know, create a draft of the piece and work through that and then share it with them and see like what kind of conversations can come out of that. I mean, they can reject that conversation or they can accept it and move it forward, maybe in directions that neither of us might have considered in the first place. How, how far away do you think you are from from answering some of your own questions? I think I've actually started to answer some of the questions already, like the questions of rigor. I'm actually um, in the process of actually answering that. What I'm actually doing right now is laying out, uh, putting out the lay of the land and seeing what other questions that arise and then giving my tentative answers to each of these questions. Methodology-wise, I have been working on that for the past one year because I was working on a different project before I got funding for this project. And the project was actually speculative design. And originally, it was conceptualized out of a meeting that uh, my institution had with another British institution. And we, I met uh, one of my counterparts from the other institution who was actually using speculative design, which actually is also another name for, you know, talking about science fiction prototyping, uh, other forms of critical design or uh, adversarial design, you know, any kinds of names you can think about design. Basically, forms of design that try to buck the trend. It doesn't try to subscribe to any particular ways of thinking. I'm not even using the word design thinking here in our conversation because that itself is also another problematic set of uh, discussion. Even though I have to use that in my everyday work only because that's the only way people that I work with can sometimes, you know, latch on to what I'm doing. So just that the design, I've already like interrogated, I think, through some of the workshops I ran with participants who have expertise in other areas but not in design to try to understand, for instance, it must be subscribed to a particular way of doing things in order to arrive in the outcome that we desire. I think in running those workshops, I've been getting increasingly more information and also more insights into what that answer could look like. And I think I'm kind of in the process of answering more of that. And because of that, I'm actually prototyping a video to try to think about uh, this question more. In fact, I'm developing a series of videos for that. And we have one that might be coming up probably sometime in either end of February or early March. And then I'm also creating, like, you talk about the question of games just now. I'm actually also creating, like, a board game together with some students um, that will actually think about how you can take speculative design and how can you use that. Um, you put it, you put in um, a game that will create an immersive experience for the players to speculate about the things that they are familiar with as well as the things that they're less familiar with and what kind of, like, things or what kind, what kind of stuff can they build at the end of that in the process of playing that game. So I think I am starting to be able to answer the question of what is speculative. I mean, my dissertation was about the speculative and I don't think I had many questions, I mean, many answers. I just probably ended up opening up more questions along the way. 
I'm starting to answer those questions, but in the process of answering those questions, I'm also creating more questions along the way. So I would say that with as many answers that I get, the more questions I end up with, and I think the number of questions I end up with is probably still a lot higher than some of the um, answers I have. But I think uh, when as my writings are uh, you know, going out and slowly getting published, I think you'll be able to also see some of the answers I have to the questions, which I probably will change again the following year. I mean, not change in a bad way in the sense that you know, I completely change it, but it might mean that I suddenly get better insight, better understanding of something that I wasn't very clear about before. But it's also possible that for some of these, that the answers that I have, what I consider as preliminary answers, may change. You know, once I understand uh, the idea more. And I actually brought speculative design as an example here because I was talking about hypothesis, right? How you can frame a hypothesis. Because we had to write a research grant to get the money to run the project. So we, of course we had to frame a hypothesis. And I can definitely tell you that it's one of the hardest hypothesis to frame. And I can definitely also tell you there's no correlation between the original hypothesis that we had with the outcome. Absolutely no correlation, no connection. It, even, it might even look like we are doing a different project from the one we thought we were doing because there's no connection whatsoever and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing yeah well the the most exciting stuff comes from the noticing what you didn't expect but um, yeah. you need to be free to notice and free to redirect your efforts towards it and that can't happen if you're playing yeah. the game for a predetermined agenda yeah yeah um is there any any yeah. uh like insights or epiphanies that you want to wrap up on that you've known so far i mean this is so ongoing that i think maybe in a year that we should have an, another conversation and, and talk about all the same things because I feel like you'll be yeah. at a different place with all of them and it will be very insightful. But I wonder if there's something that something in a sentence, like an insight that's very dear to you or something that you've tried to remember. remember or... One of the things that I was always, I've always been thinking a lot about, I, I guess this was something I was thinking about 15 years ago, even though I didn't really have a way of articulating that at that point in time. And which I'm actually thinking about right now is this question of complementarity. I know like, you know, in physics, there's just like the principle of complementarity, but this is a different kind of complementarity. It's thinking about, firstly, must two things complement each other? I mean, when we talk about doing art and science, right? Is it so important that they complement each other? I mean, why is it wrong if they contradict each other? I mean, why can't we work with contradictions and then see what comes out of that contradiction? And then is complementary necessarily mean that, you know, they have to be compatible, that they must converge? Or complementarity means that, you know, fine, you know, they don't get along uh, epistemically, uh, epistemically or in any other form. But maybe in spite of not, you know, converging, not getting along well with each other, maybe what, is, what comes out of that, you know, through that kind of like this struggle 
is probably what will help answer some of the things that we don't know about because we've always been working around right this idea we need to find some complement so that we can you know develop greater insights into something that we don't understand today something that's not anticipated but probably we are looking at it the wrong way maybe what we need to look at is the space of struggle the space where you know there's this quarrel that's actually going on between all these different knowledge objects and maybe it's in that quarrel right that space of incompatibility you know this epistemic uh, incompatibility is actually where I think this whole emergent object that is neither science nor art or which is part of this art-science hybrid can actually come up about and I think this for me is a sort of like an important I'm not sure if you can call it epiphany but it's not like insight because all this while for so many years I've always been trying to search for complementarity in terms of being compatible and I think I'm not alone in that I basically have been following the herd in doing the same thing and I realized maybe that's the reason why because when I look at how discoveries are made right in the sciences and how new art forms emerge I mean they're not necessarily completely new but they sometimes try to push a way of doing art that's different from extend existing status quo way of doing art um, it's because of a particular struggle that they have and of course the struggle and the break from the struggle may not necessarily engender any kind of receptivity you know you might end up being you know cast out you'll be a outcast because you don't conform and it happens as much in the sciences as in the arts but maybe that is the outcast right where sometimes the most promising and probably even a sort of like a breakthrough can actually come out of and actually there are lots of breakthroughs today that have not now gone mainstream because they have considered as valuable that used to be outcast so yeah so i think this is something that i probably want to consider in what i'm doing right now and when I actually look at objects, I'm not necessarily looking for something that is very neat or something that's nightly packaged for me. Oh, this is definitely an art science object. In fact, I'm interested to look at, you know, uh, examples that may not even fit within my own theory or my own existing hypothesis of what is art science. And to maybe use that as a way of trying to push the boundaries, right? Instead of just going back to the same familiar, uh, easy to identify, easy to explain to everyone else kind of objects. So, so yeah, so that's something that I'm actually also moving towards as wow. well. I can't wait to hear where this goes. <laughs> yeah, I'm also wondering where this goes. I would have to say that the past year plot has been actually pretty exciting. I mean, when I started out last year, it was so tentative. It's like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell I've gotten myself into. It might be a complete failure. I've never done it this way with people before. I actually do it on my own. So it fails, you know, the person that... I mean, I will do it more like a sort of like a side project. So if it fails, it doesn't really hit really hard, you know, because I have other things going on. But right now, it's my first time actually taking the risk and putting it forefront in what I'm doing. And maybe it'll fail, but if it fails, it probably. But sometimes it's always in failure. I look at and this is goes back to the work I do in history of science and technology. Like a lot of the greatest things that come out that actually come from failure. There's always initial failure. That comes with it and maybe we need to define the issue of failure i'm also writing about the issue of failure and how we define failure and so i talk about rigor is it when something is not rigorous is it a failure or is it an error on a part 
So yeah, so there's all these things. I probably will talk about this more six months or a year from now when some of these works actually get published and actually come out. And we can actually even have conversations around that and people might even have more things to contribute, to add on, you know, have you read that and maybe to push back on as well. And I think that's great. You know, I mean, it's always good to have either. I mean, I don't really like so much to go for like people accepting the things I say or do as they are. I actually like pushback a lot because it does allow the work that I do to grow. It also forces me to like rethink why I'm doing what I'm doing all the time. So I think when something goes mainstream is when something gets a bit too soft and you no longer see the urgency of like trying to, you know, really push anymore because, you know, it's comfortable now. Everyone's accepting what you do. No one's challenging anything that you do. So it gets boring in a way. Of course, it's comfortable and you feel more accepted and you feel like, oh, I have a community now. But it's also when things get, as you were saying, a bit more lame. Mm, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and and all the work. Yes, thank you and very the much. Time that's gone into getting to the point now where there's a language that you're building around this landscape mm-hmm. that you're trying to shed light on mm-hmm. as well so that we can all meet you there and so that we can all Yes, thanks for this conversation as well. It's nice to be able to talk to someone about it. <laughs> Um, and we'll mm-hmm. definitely we'll make a date so that we can check in again. I feel like this is something that we need to hear about a few more times over the course of its blossoming. Yeah. So awesome. Over time. It could be a good or bad thing. <laughs> I'm not very coherent yeah. in a way because I can't yes, exactly. like, think in multiple directions at the same time. So, and yeah, when I have to speak very freely, sometimes I fear that I may confuse people along the way because they'll be like, okay, what's she going on about right now? She, she, she was just on something else uh, like just five seconds ago and now she's on to something completely different. So, so yeah, it'd be interesting. I like you said, they don't have to be, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. exactly. They can they bring value can bring without, value needing, without to needing to compliment. compliment. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt. Cool. It was a pleasure cool. talking to you. Thank you.